Chapter Seven of Pioneers of the Pacific Coast. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gilles Leblanc. Pioneers of the Pacific Coast: A Chronicle of Sea Rovers and Fur Hunters by Agnes C. Laut. Thompson and the Astorians while fraser was working down the wild canyons of the great river which now bears his name other fur traders were looking towards the pacific ocean in eighteen ten john jacob astor a new york merchant who bought furs from the nor'westers in montreal for shipment to germany formed the pacific fur company and took into its service a number of the partners and servants of the northwest company some of these men were dispatched round the horn in the tonquin to the mouth of the columbia while another party went overland from mackinaw and st louis following the trail of lewis and clark one of the nor'westers who entered astor's service was alexander mckay mackenzie's companion on the journey to the coast another was a brother of the stuart who had accompanied fraser through new caledonia and a third was a brother of the mcdougall who commanded fort macleod the first fort built by the nor'westers in new caledonia in the light of subsequent developments it is a matter for speculation whether these nor'westers joined astor purposely to overthrow his scheme in the interest of their old company or were later bribed to desert him or as is most likely simply grew dissatisfied with the inexperienced blundering mismanagement of astor's company and reverted gladly to their old service however that may have been it is certain that the northwest company did not fail to take notice of the plans that astor had set afoot for the pacific fur trade for in a secret session of the partners at fort william on lake superior it was decided in council that the company should send to columbia river where the americans had established astoria and that a party should proceed overland to the coast it puzzled the nor'westers to learn that the river fraser had explored in eighteen o eight was not the columbia where then were the upper reaches of the great river of the west which gray in vancouver had reported the company issued urgent instructions to its traders in the far west to keep pushing up the north and south saskatchewan up the red deer up the bow up the athabasca up the smoky up the pembina and to press over the mountains wherever any river led oceanwards through the passes this duty of finding new passable ways to the sea was especially incumbent on the company's surveyor and astronomer david thompson he was formerly of the hudson's bay company but had come over to the nor'westers and in their service had surveyed from the assiniboine to the missouri and from lake superior to the saskatchewan Towards the spring of 1799, Thompson had been on the North Saskatchewan and had moved round the region of Lesser Slave Lake. That year, at Grand Portage, at the annual meeting of the traders of the Northwest Company, he was ordered to begin a thorough exploration of the mountains, and the spring of 1800 saw him at Rocky Mountain. Note to explain what may appear like a confusion of names it may be stated that in the history of the fur trade from eighteen hundred to eighteen fifty there were at various stages as many as sixteen differently situated fur posts under the name of rocky mountain house End of note. 
on the upper reaches of the north saskatchewan above the junction of the clearwater hitherto the nor'westers had crossed the mountains by way of the peace river but thompson was to explore a dozen new trails across the great divide while four of his men crossed over to the red deer river and rafted or canoed down the south saskatchewan thompson himself with five french canadians and two indian guides crossed the mountains to the kootenay country the kootenay indians were encamped on the kootenay plains preparatory to their winter's hunt and thompson persuaded some of them to accompany him back over the mountains to rocky mountain house on the north saskatchewan this was the beginning of the trade between the kootenays and the white men probably from these indians thompson learned of the entrance to the rockies by the beautiful clear mountain stream now named the bow and duncan mcgillivray a leading partner accompanied him south from rocky mountain house to the spot on the bow where to-day the city of calgary stands it was on this trip that northwesters first met the pigeon overland to the missouri snow was falling when the traders entered the rockies at what is now the gap on the canadian pacific railway inside the gateway to the rugged defile of forest and mountain the traders reveled in the sublime scenery of the banff valley at banff eastward of cascade mountain on the sheltered plain where kootenays and stonies used to camp one can still find the circular mounds that mark a trading station of this era whether the white men discovered the beautiful blue tarn now known as devil's lake or saw the bow river falls where tourists to-day fish away long summer afternoons or dipped in the famous hot springs on the slope of sulphur mountain we do not know they could hardly have met and conversed with the kootenays and stonies without hearing about these attractions which yearly drew indian families to camp in the encircling mountains while the men ranged the field to hunt thompson and mcgillivray were back at rocky mountain house on the saskatchewan for christmas some time during eighteen hundred their french canadian voyageurs are known to have crossed howe's pass the source of the north saskatchewan which was discovered by duncan mcgillivray and named after joseph howe's of the northwest company for several years after this thompson was engaged in making surveys for the northwest company in the valley of the peace river and between the saskatchewan and the churchill in eighteen o six we find him in the country south of the peace which was then in charge of that jules quinel who was to accompany fraser in eighteen o eight fraser as we have seen was already busy exploring the region between macleod lake and stuart lake and had laid his plans to descend the great river which he thought was grace columbia now while thompson spent the winter of eighteen o six o seven between the peace and the north saskatchewan trading and exploring he doubtless learned of fraser's explorations west of the rockies and of the vast extent of new caledonia and june eighteen o seven saw him over the mountains on the kootenay plains where to his infinite delight he came upon a turbulent river whose swollen current flowed towards the pacific may god give me to see where its waters flow into the ocean he ejaculated this was however but a tributary of the long-sought columbia it was the river now called the blaeberry thompson followed down the banks of this stream by a well-known indian trail and on june thirtieth he came to the columbia itself although the river here flowed to the north he must have known from the deposits of blue silt and the turgidity of the current that he had found at least an upper reach of the river of the west 
but he could hardly guess that its winding course would lead him a dance of eleven hundred miles before he could reach the sea the party camped and built the boats they needed and a fortnight later they were poling upstream to the lake we today know as windermere where thompson built a fourth which he called kootenay here he spent the winter trading and when the warm chinook winds cleared away the snows in april eighteen o eight about the time fraser was preparing to descend the fraser river he paddled upstream to where the columbia river had its source in upper columbia lake a portage of about a mile and a half brought him to another large river which flowed southward this stream the kootenay led him south into the country of the flatheads then made a great bend and swept to the north this was disappointing thompson returned to his fort on windermere lake packed the furs his men had gathered and retraced his trail of the previous year to rocky mountain house he had undoubtedly found the river of the west but he had learned nothing of its course to the sea during nearly all of eighteen o nine thompson was exploring the kootenay river and its branches through idaho and montana still no path had he found to the sea in eighteen ten he seems to have gone east for instructions from his company what the instructions were we may conjecture from subsequent developments astor of new york as we have seen was busy launching his fur traders for operations on the pacific pegan warriors blocked the passage into the rockies by the north saskatchewan so thompson in the autumn of this year ascended the athabasca winter came early the passes were filled with snow and beset by warriors he failed to get provisions down from rocky mountain house and his men cut off by hostile savages from all help from outside posts had literally to cut and shovel their way through athabasca pass while subsisting on short rations the men built huts in the pass some hunted while others made snowshoes and sleighs they were down to rations of dog meat and moccasins and hardly knew whether to expect death at the hands of raiding pegans or from starvation on new year's day of eighteen eleven when the thermometer dropped to twenty-four below zero with a biting wind thompson was packing four broken-down horses and two dogs over the pass to the west side the mountains rose precipitously on each side but when the trail began dropping down westward the weather moderated though the snow grew deeper and in the third week of january thompson came on the baffling current of the columbia he camped there for the remainder of the winter near the entrance of the canoe river why he went up the columbia in the spring tracing it back to its source and thence south again into idaho instead of rounding the bend and going down the river we do not know he was evidently puzzled by the contrary directions in which the great river seemed to flow at all events by a route which is not clearly known thompson struck the spokane river in june eighteen eleven near the site of the present city of spokane and following down the spokane he again found the elusive columbia and embarked on its waters at the mouth of the snake river on july ninth he erected a pole on which he hoisted a flag and attached a sheet of paper claiming possession of the country for great britain and the northwest company a month later when astor's traders came upstream from the mouth of the columbia they were amazed to find a british flag waving triumphantly at this spot unfortunately thompson's claim ignored the fact that both lewis and clark and the astorians 
had already passed this way on their overland route to the Pacific. From this point Thompson evidently raced for the Pacific. Within a week he had passed the Dalles, passed the mouth of the Willamette, passed what was to become the site of the Hudson's Bay Company's post of Fort Vancouver, and at midday of Monday, July 15th, he swept around a bend of the mighty stream and came within sight of the sea. Crouched between the dank, heavy forests and the heaving river floods stood a little palisaded and fresh-hewn log fur post, Astoria. Thompson was two months too late to claim the region of the lower Columbia for the Nor'westers. One can imagine the wild hello with which the tired voyageurs greeted Astoria when their comrades of old from Athabasca came tumbling hilariously from the fort gates. MacDougall of Rocky Mountain House, Stuart of Chippewine, and John Clark, whom Thompson had known at Ile à la Crosse. But where was Alexander Mackay, who had gone overland with Mackenzie in 1793? The men fell into one another's arms with gruff, profane embraces. Thompson was hailed into a sumptuous midday dinner of river salmon, duck and partridge, and wines brought round the world. The absence of Mackay was the only thing that took from the pleasure of the occasion. A party of the Astorians, as we have seen, had sailed round the Horn on the Tonquin. Another party had gone overland from Mackinac in St. Louis. On the Tonquin were twenty sailors, four partners, twelve clerks, and thirteen voyageurs. She sailed from New York in September 1810. Jonathan Thorne, the captain, was a retired naval officer who resented the easy familiarity of the fur traders with their servants, and ridiculed the seasickness of the freshwater voyageurs. The Tonquin had barely rounded the horn before the partners and the commander were at sixes and sevens. A landing was made at the mouth of the Columbia in March 1811, and eight lives were lost in an attempt to head small boats up against the tide-rip of river and sea. After endless jangling about where to land, where to build, how to build, the rude fort which Thompson saw had been knocked together. The Tonquin sailed up the coast of Vancouver Island to trade. On the vessel went Alexander Mackay to help in the trade with the coastal Indians, whom he was supposed to know. In spite of Mackay's warning that the Nootka tribes were notoriously treacherous and resentful towards white traders, Captain Thorne, with lordly indifference, permitted them to swarm aboard his vessel. Once, when Mackay had gone ashore at Cleoquot, where Gray had wintered twenty years before, Thorne, forgetting that his ship was not a training school, struck an old chief across the face and threw him over the rail. When Mackay heard what had happened, instead of applauding the captain's valor he showed the utmost alarm and begged thorne to put out for the open sea the captain smiled in scorn twenty indians were welcomed on the deck the very next day more came at the same time the vessel was completely surrounded by a fleet of canoes as if to throw white men off all suspicion the squaws came paddling out laughing and chatting Mackay, in horror, noticed that in the barter all the Indians were taking knives for their furs, and that groups were casually stationing themselves at points of vantage on the deck, at the hatches, at the cabin door, along the taffrail. Mackay hurried to the captain. Thorne affected to ignore any danger, but he nevertheless ordered the anchors up. Seeing so many Indians still on board, the sailors hesitated. 
thorn lost his head and uttered a shout this served as a signal for the savages who shrieked with derisive glee and fell upon the crew with knives hatches and clubs down the companionway tumbled the ship's clerk lewis stabbed in the back over the taffrail headlong fell mckay clubbed by the indians aboard caught on the knives of the squaws below the captain was so unprepared for the attack that he had no weapon but his pocket-knife he was stunned by a club pitched overboard and literally cut to pieces by the squaws in a moment the tonquin was a shambles all on deck were slaughtered but four who gained the main cabin and with muskets aimed through windows scattered the yelling horde the indians sprang from the ship and drew off while the four white survivors escaped in a boat and the tonquin's sails flapped idly in the wind next morning the indians paddled out to plunder what seemed to be a deserted ship a wounded white man appeared above the hatches and waved them to come on board and trade they came in hosts in hordes in flocks like carrion birds or ants overrunning a half-dead thing suddenly earth and air at clearquat harbour were rent with a terrific explosion and the sea was drenched with the blood of the slaughtered savages the only remaining white man the wounded lewis had blown up the powder magazine he perished himself in order to punish the marauders had this story been known at astoria when thompson arrived he would have found the astorians in a thoroughly dejected condition as it was murmurs of discontent were heard here they had been marooned on the columbia for three months without a ship waiting for the contingent of the astorians who were toiling across the continent note the overland party suffered the greatest hardship and some loss of life and did not arrive at astoria till january eighteen twelve end of note not thus did norwesters conduct expeditions what thompson thought of the situation we do not know all we do know is that he remained only a week on july twenty second fully provisioned by mcdougall he went back up the columbia post haste one year later we find thompson at fort william reporting the results of his expedition to the assembled directors of the northwest company he had surveyed every part of the columbia from its source to its mouth and he was the first white man on its upper waters the war of eighteen twelve had begun and a british warship was on its way to capture astoria at the same time the nor'westers dispatched an overland expedition to the columbia among their emissaries went the men of new caledonia alexander henry the younger of rocky mountain house donald mctavish and a dozen others who were former comrades of the leading astorians they succeeded in their mission and in the month of october eighteen thirteen astor's fort was sold to the northwest company and renamed fort george the methods of fur traders have been the same the world over to frighten a rival off the ground if possible if not then to buy him off it is not all surmised to suppose that when thompson went to the pacific there was in view some other purpose than merely to survey an unknown river but exploration and the fur trade went hand in hand and whatever the motives may have been the result was that after more than four years of arduous toil thompson had given to commerce a great waterway his exploration of the columbia closes the period of discovery on the pacific coast
End of chapter 7